very clearly, I was supposed to talk about Jacob and Esau each saying, I have enough, when they met. I had no idea what to do with it. So finally, I hope I figured it out. And actually what it does is it leads you down some very interesting places. So what I want to do is I want to talk about it in the context of five questions. You remember several Torah portions ago when Jacob stole the blessing. What was it he thought he was stealing? Question number one. Question number two is, what did he actually get? And then question number three from today's Torah portion is, why was Jacob on the other side of the river from everybody else? What was he doing there? And then when he wrestles with the angel, why did the angel throw his hip out? What's that all about? And then finally, what does I have enough mean? What does it mean in the context of Jacob, and what does it mean in the context of Esau? So that's how I'm going to organize this, and we'll see if we can get it going. We don't really understand what blessing Jacob thought he was filching. Now, you all remember this from times we've talked about it in the past. There were two blessings that Isaac had. The blessing that he intended to give to Esau, and a different blessing that he intended to give to Jacob. So when Jacob gets run out of town by his brother, Isaac gives him a blessing that is totally different than the blessing that he had for his older brother. So the blessing that was given to Jacob under false pretenses was in fact the blessing of the firstborn. And you can sort of understand that because Jacob took advantage of his brother's impulsiveness to get the right of the firstborn. So one of my assumptions here is that the blessing he thought he was stealing is the blessing that Isaac gave him, which is the blessing of the firstborn. Given his past behavior, I think that was what he was after. I think that was what Isaac thought he was giving him. So let's look at the blessing of the firstborn for just a second. The blessing of the firstborn, in Hebrew you get a double portion. The purpose of that is to keep the family together. The idea of the firstborn son is going to be the one who succeeds the father as the leader of the family, leader of the tribe, however you want to describe it. And in order for him to do his job, he needs some extra resources because he isn't just responsible for himself and his own family, he's responsible for the extended family. So the blessing of the firstborn is intended to make him the leader. Remember when Esau comes in and is whining about not having gotten a blessing, Isaac said, I've made him ruler over you. In other words, he is now the firstborn. He's got the extra resources, and he's got the leadership, and it's going to be his job to take care of the extended family once Isaac passes away. That's the blessing of the firstborn. I'm sort of assuming that that's what Jacob thought he was stealing, and it's certainly what Isaac intended to give him. Now the next question you've got is, did he get it? 
Isaac has given him this blessing, does he actually get that blessing? And the answer to that is no. He does not. Because remember, he leaves with the wolves at his backside as he's running north instead of going forth like Abraham's servant went to get a bride for Isaac he goes with nothing except clothes on his back and a a bag full of lunch that's all he's got so when he gets up to Laban instead of having his father and his father's resources available to him to negotiate for a bride he's got to work to get a bride all of his wealth is gained independent of Isaac so as he's coming back to meet his brother all of the wealth that he has doesn't come from Isaac it's not the division of Isaac's property I get two thirds you get one third that's not what's happening at all he's gotten his wealth entirely independently of the right of the firstborn furthermore as he comes back one of the things that happens in the meeting is he actually bows down in front of Esau and he calls Esau my lord so what he's done is he has given up the right of the firstborn he said I'm not the leader of the family anymore Furthermore, all of this wealth that I got didn't come from dad. Now, it's interesting. We don't actually know what happens to Isaac's wealth. We can guess. But scripture tells us exactly what happens to Abraham's wealth. When Abraham gets ready to divide his property up as he gets ready to die, Ishmael is cut out. Then we have a series of sons that Abraham has with Keturah, whatever his second wife is, those sons are given a present and are shipped out of there and sent to the east. And it specifically says in scripture, when Abraham died, all of his wealth went to Isaac. That's explicitly stated. Nothing is said about the wealth of Isaac. We don't know what happened to it. We can guess, I mean, we can surmise, but scripture is silent. So both Esau and Jacob are very wealthy men. And we can infer that Esau's wealth was an extension of Isaac's wealth because Esau stayed around town, stayed in the family. One can assume that Isaac gave him a start, you know, flocks and so forth. And in fact, we can infer that since Jacob was gone, Esau stepped in and was managing the ranch, if you will, during his brother's absence. And we can infer that Esau's wealth was from Isaac. We know that Jacob's was not. Now, one of the things about the right of the firstborn is you're responsible for the extended tribe. Esau showed that he wasn't really interested in accepting that responsibility. 
That's the business with the stew, you know, where he comes in and he says, I'm famished. What is the firstborn to me? I'm starving. What he's saying is, I really don't want the responsibility of being the firstborn. Jacob says, I do want that responsibility. But notice he doesn't get it. And in fact, Esau winds up having it. So that's the first two questions. The next question is, what on earth is he doing on the other side of the river? He sends flocks and gifts to his brother and so forth, and they all head south. And the message has come back, your brother's coming, and he's got 400 guys with him. And so he sends everybody across the river, and he's over there by himself. What is he doing over there? Now, there's a rabbinic answer to that, and... There's a couple other surmise answers to that. The rabbinic answer to that is, well, he remembered some small things that he had forgotten when he moved everybody across. So he was going back across the river to pick up some stuff that was forgotten. And the lesson they draw from that is everything that God gives you is important. So if God has given you something, it's important, and you need to make sure you go back and get it all because God gave it to you for a reason. That's the rabbinic answer. Possible answer, Johnnyology, is he wanted some time alone to pray. Remember, Yeshua, before the crucifixion, goes off by himself to be alone to pray. That's certainly entirely possible. Again, scripture is silent. Now, the third possible answer to that ties in with the angel that kicks his pins out from under him and cripples him. There's a possibility that he was getting ready to run. Because what happened the last time when he had a confrontation with his brother? What did he do? He ran. So, This is a guess. It is not scripture. Every rabbi in the world would disagree with me. But it's entirely possible that the reason that the angel crippled him and the reason that the angel wrestled with him is to say, you're not going to run. I'm going to make it impossible for you to do so. First thing I'm going to do is I'm going to wrestle with you all night so you can't go anywhere. And then the second thing that's going to happen is when we finally are done in the morning, I'm going to take your leg out so you can't run. You've got to face this. That's a guess. That is not scripture. And as I say, virtually every rabbi you ever talked to would say, ah, he's crazy. But as I say, the question comes up, why does this angel take his leg out? What is that all about? And the only thing that I can think of that makes sense is you don't get to run anymore. You've got to face this. You've got to do it. And I'm going to make sure you do. Make sure you don't have a last-minute failure of courage, if you will. That's a guess on my part. So do with that whatever seems good to you. So let's go to the question of what does it mean to say that I have enough? Now, One of the things that's important to understand is the English in every version of the Bible that I have, and I looked at all of them, says what both Jacob and Esau say, I have enough. The Hebrew is different. They are not saying the same thing in Hebrew at all. 
What Esau is saying, when he says he has enough, he's using the word rob, resh bet, which means great, enough, a lot, plenty. The word that Jacob used means everything. So what Jacob says is, I have everything. What Esau says is, I have enough. Two very different things. They're translated the same in your English Bible, so if you're not looking in the Hebrew, you won't see it. But let's talk about that difference. So Esau says, and he uses the word rod, I have enough. And Matthew Poole's commentary, I have no idea who Matthew Poole is. What Esau is saying is, I neither need it for my use, nor desire it as compensation for my former injuries. So what he's saying is, first off, I got enough to satisfy me. And furthermore, I am not holding a grudge against you, and I am not asking you to give me reparations for what you did to me. That's what Esau is saying. The word that Jacob uses, kol, kaf lamed, which means I have everything. And Esau says it first, Jacob says it second. So, let's look at what's going on. And we have to go back to Rebecca. Remember when Rebecca was pregnant? She's having a hard time and the kids are fighting even in her womb. And God says to her, two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. By the way, that is ambiguous. It can also be read, the older shall the younger serve. The Hebrew is ambiguous. And how that all works out is to be determined. So the first thing we know is that Isaac's family splits. So what you have coming out of Isaac's family is two kingdoms, two nations, two peoples. And what I will suggest to you is one of them is the kingdom of God and the other one is the kingdoms of this world. So Esau, getting the right of the firstborn, lead you forward to Egypt where God kills the firstborn, all of the stuff God doesn't routinely use human firstborns in his story. You have Cain and Abel. Firstborn didn't go. You have David and his brothers, not the firstborn. You have Judah who is the king. He's not the firstborn, he's the fourth son down. So God doesn't routinely use the firstborn, so the fact that Esau is splitting off and is forming, metaphorically, the kingdoms of this world, that's where the human firstborn goes. Jacob, who represents the kingdom of God, notice that his wealth doesn't come from Isaac. His wives do not come from Isaac. He really doesn't get anything from his father, other than, of course, 
the blessing of Abraham and so forth. So what you have are two kingdoms being separated here and this is the separation point between those two kingdoms. Jacob and Esau. And so when Jacob is saying, I have enough, what he's saying is, I have everything. I am the kingdom of God. What Esau is saying is, I got all the material stuff that I need. So Esau's perspective is worldly. Jacob's perspective is eternal. And you can see that when each of them says, I have enough, because they say it very differently. And by the way, the blessing of Abraham, he was blessed with descendants, children, and land. He's got the descendants, he never gets the land. Because he comes back into the land, stays there for 20 minutes, and then goes into exile in Egypt. And he dies in Egypt. So he never gets the blessing of Abraham fulfilled in his life. He's got part of it. He's got the descendants. And those descendants are going to form the nation of Israel, which is going to be representative of the kingdom of God. And it isn't until the exodus that they come back and they get the land. So, Yeshua, when he is before Pilate, one of the questions that Pilate asks him is, are you the king of the Jews? Now, I I read this last night, and all I could think of was a court where you got some crazy homeless guy and you're asking him these questions and he gives you these answers that don't make any sense to you at all. So, are you the king of the Jews? He answers, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Does that sound like some crazy guy in a courtroom that isn't paying attention to things and just sort of got his own agenda? It does to me. And I can imagine what Pilate is thinking here. I got this nutso here. So he goes back and he says, I don't find anything wrong with this guy. Parenthesis. Kind of a nutso, but you know, no reason to kill him. And of course the Jews know better. And they say, no, no, no. This guy's not a nutso. You got to get rid of him. But the point is, Yeshua says that his kingdom is not of this world. So what he's saying is, there is a kingdom of the world, and there is God's kingdom, and they are separate. They are different. And what we see at the meeting of Jacob and Esau is the division of those two kingdoms. That's when the split happens. So this passage has always struck me. In Genesis 32:31, Jacob is done wrestling, and 32:31, the sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel. Let me say that the way it actually is. The sun rose upon him as he passed before the face of God. That's what that means. You know, the Japanese have the rising sun as their flag, 
that indicates promise. That indicates a new beginning. That indicates that the whole world has opened up. So the sun rose upon him as he passed before the face of God. I will close with a quote from Rabbi Sachs on this Torah portion. He says, We are an unstable combination of dust of the earth and the breath of God. And this calls on us constantly to make decisions, choices, which will make us grow to be as big as our ideals, or if we choose wrongly, make us shrivel into a small, petulant creature obsessed by trivia. Life is a journey means striving each day to be greater than we were the day before, individually and collectively. One of the things that I said last time is God does not shield Jacob from the consequences of his behavior. He, as a young man, behaved pretty badly. God does not shield him from the consequences of that. He gets tricked into marrying the wrong wife, his daughter gets raped, his son gets sold into slavery. All of those things happen to him. So God doesn't erase any of that. Those are not punishments, those are consequences. Yet, what God does is takes Jacob's poor decisions and his character and he changes him entirely in a wrestling match. Now that wrestling match is the culmination of 20 years. The wrestling match wouldn't have done any good at Bethel when he was leaving. But 20 years later, he has become a mature man. He has accepted responsibility. He has got families. He's got possessions that he has earned. He is a different man. He is no longer the second-born son who doesn't like who he is and wants to be his big brother. That's no longer who he is. He's changed. And as I say, God doesn't just sort of say, Oh, all better. Now things are going to be great. No, the consequences of what he did carry out through the rest of his life. But he is the kingdom of God. And he recognizes it when he says, I have everything. Because he does. He now has everything because he is the kingdom of God.